Section one of Wellington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Wellington by George Hooper. Chapter one. Arthur Wesley. Sometime in the spring of 1769, either in April or May, at Dublin or at Dangan Castle, County Meath, the boy was born whose name became and is familiar and famous to all the world, Wellington. His father was Garrett, Earl of Mornington, a lover and composer of music. His mother was Anne Hill, a daughter of Lord Dungannon. He was christened Arthur, and he had three brothers who were men of mark in their day. The family name of his house, then Wesley, was afterwards transformed into Wellesley, which is described as the ancient spelling, but if one of that family came from Somerset, the spelling in the reign of Edward I was Wellesley, Richard de Wellesley being set down in Rymer as the leader of a body of levies who took part in the Scottish wars. According to Mr. Gleig, Arthur was descended from a man of English stock, Walter Cowley, or Cowley, who migrated in the 15th century from Rutlandshire to Ireland. His surname he derived from the Wesleys, also ancient settlers therein, his grandfather Richard Colley having acquired that name by adoption into the Wesley family. As Lady Mornington always insisted that her son Arthur was born on May Day of 1769, and as Arthur himself kept that as his birthday, we may reasonably accept it, although his baptismal certificate is dated the 30th, and an election committee of the Irish House of Commons decided that he must have been born before April 29th, but the committee's decision cannot be regarded as trustworthy evidence. Let the Duke's birthday stand as May 1st, just as that of the young Corsican Bonaparte, who was named Napoleon, is now allotted to August 15th in the same year, despite surviving doubts whether it was on that or on another day that his mother, the beautiful Letitia, hurried from church to give the world a conqueror. The curious traveller and the political enthusiast visit the Casa Bonaparte and Ayaccio, the wellspring of a grand realistic romance. Wellington has no shrine, and we must be content to know that he was an Irishman, sprung from an English stock, whose birthplace and birthday neither the duke nor any member of his family treated as worthy of a moment's consideration. Indifference to non-essentials is one note of Wellington's career, throughout which the theatrical and legendary element was conspicuous by its absence. But it was not wanting in romance, for, as we shall see, the dunce of the family came to be the victor of Asai, Vittoria, and Waterloo. The incidents of his childhood and youth are only faintly indicated in the traditions which remain. We are told that his mother had no fondness for her son Arthur. Mr. Gleek says that her feeling toward him was not far removed from aversion, and thus he had not much home life after he had passed out of the nursery. Certain it is that he rarely alluded to his early days, and the conduct attributed to Lady Mornington may account for his perfunctory visits to her when he was the duke, which made Mr. Greville, who could know nothing of the facts, write him down a hard man. At some time, then, he was placed in a school at Chelsea, whence for a brief period he went to Eton. 
in neither did he shine and it has been often said that in after years when eton was proud of him nothing could be remembered to his credit or discredit except that he fought a battle with bubba smith the brother of the witty canon of st paul's from eton he was sent to a french military school england according to her wont having none of her own and no military institutions of any sort nothing but makeshifts for institutions the french school selected for arthur wesley was at angers on the maine mr rakes was told by general sir a mackenzie that the school was much frequented by young englishmen because the governor the marquis de pignerolles an engineer looked after their studies and also because his brother had a fine riding school the general remembered the young arthur but all he could say was that the boy was rather weak in health not very attentive to his studies and constantly occupied with a little terrier called bick which followed him everywhere a more definite glimpse of the student than that we cannot give it is as vague as the boxing match at eton but it enables us to picture the slim bright-eyed boy idling in the streets of the picturesque old town or playing with vic on the steep cliffs which rise out of the water just below the confluence of three streams did he read king john or the memoirs of richelieu or try to comprehend on the spot the foolish fight at the pont de Cé down on the loire he dined with the neighbouring great folks met Cies and de jocourt and acquired some knowledge of the french tongue which served him well in after life it is not on record when he went to angers nor how long he stayed there he said himself a year perhaps nor when he quitted the school so dim it all is but general mackenzie told mr rakes that they left angers together and drove into paris in a broken cabriolet de poste and that they put up at a mean sort of inn near the palais royal probably toward the end of seventeen eighty six for in seventeen eighty seven arthur wesley became an ensign in the seventy-third foot the first fixed date in his story subsequent to the year of his birth his elder brother richard earl of mornington since his father's death in seventeen eighty one and a shining academic scholar watched over the lad and pushed him along political and social influences went for much then whatever they do now and the ensign soon appeared as a lieutenant of the seventy-sixth and forty-first a subaltern in the twelfth light dragoons and next as a captain in the fifty-eighth foot and then as captain in the eighteenth light dragoons all between seventeen eighty seven and seventeen ninety two nor did the shifting process end there for he first got a majority and then by purchase the lieutenant colonelcy of the thirty-third in the autumn of seventeen ninety three it was his brother who helped him to the money which made the last step feasible the brother who probably knew his capacity when it was invisible to others and whose insight was amply justified thus arthur had the command of a battalion at twenty-four but he was beaten in that line by stapleton cotton whose family influence placed him in seventeen ninety four when he was twenty-one at the head of the twenty-fifth light dragoons wealth and interest were nearly all powerful it was the palmy day of purchase which george the third had tried and failed to abolish and until the duke of york became commander-in-chief infants of both sexes figured in the army list as the holders of commissions 
before he had blossomed into a battalion commander the viceroy of ireland lord westmoreland put him on his staff and his successor lord camden retained him as an aide-de-camp he also entered the irish house of commons sitting for the borough of trim and it was on this occasion that a committee had to decide whether or not in april seventeen ninety he had attained his majority they seated him but their report cannot be accepted as evidence of his age for party knew no scruples neither the vice-regal court nor the parliament house were highly moral schools one was profligate and the other corrupt but his subsequent career showed that the young soldier took no harm from either how he behaved under temptations common to all and resistless for many is not authentically recorded and we have to infer it from the fruits borne by the tree in riper years stories are told of extravagance and debts and of loans advanced by tradesmen which enabled the young soldier to go abroad on foreign service they may be true though why it should be thought astonishing that a younger son in a semi-royal court could not live on his pay and why drapers and shoemakers should not lend money as well as bankers and builders counters has never been made clear in after years the duke of wellington said that he never got into debt which cannot mean that he always paid ready money and the dublin anecdotes which are very vague refer probably to nothing more than the stress on the pocket caused by a summons to embark for the west indies or the low countries the one fact about him which is indubitable is that he was cheerful and had many friends and that he wooed and won lady charlotte pakenham daughter of lord longford that when her parents refused their consent to the match the two young folks sighed and obeyed like gibbon yet unlike him their affections endured the trial of discouragement and absence so that when ten years afterwards the little aide-de-camp returned from india as a major-general and a victor in great battles the lord and lady longford discovered that he was a prize and the faithful lovers were rewarded for their constancy the truth is that the dublin folks did not or could not look below the surface and that the essential qualities of the young soldier were precisely those which courtiers and politicians are the least likely to discern he was dull so they thought because he had not the superficial glitter and precocity the conventional hallmarks which common minds often regard as signs of talent or genius he was the ugly duckling whose brilliant transformation is such a source of astonishment and perplexity to the ordinary run of mankind the butterfly period of his life when he had to hover in attendance on the viceroy ended with his promotion to the command of the thirty-third foot in september seventeen ninety three here we come upon a fact which illustrates the character of the young colonel and is certainly a note of promise for he took up his work as a leader of men in earnest and proved at once that while apparently idle and frivolous he had not wasted his time so steadily did he apply himself to the task of working his regiment up to the highest attainable point that in a few months it was officially declared to be the best drilled and most efficient within the limits of the irish command the reason of course was that lieutenant colonel wesley not only directed the work but saw that it was done this labor was the first piece of hard practical work he had to perform and the result gives a clue to his life's work which in all he undertook was thorough 
the quality of the man came out when the touchstone was applied and only required a larger field and a tougher task to produce still more surprises while he was drilling the thirty-third the youthful genius who signed himself at that date bonaparte was engaged in wrestling toulon from the royalists and the english upon a plan which he had the courage to tell the minister of war was the only practicable plan a truth which luckily for them the committee of public safety recognized it is instructive now to read even the names of some of the batteries the breechless the fearless men the mountain the convention to learn from him who was to become napoleon that general dugommier fought with truly republican courage and that his business-like and indefatigable eulogist was constructing improved furnaces for the heating of red-hot shot wherewith to burn up the ships of the despots but it was the correct tone and language whatever his words might be at one epoch or another the future emperor was just as much in earnest and as thorough-going as the colonel of the thirty-third foot the french revolution which prepared a field for both during that winter of seventeen ninety three ninety four had brought forth the reign of terror and was displaying its wickedness within and its vast strength without young france had risen against tyrants and old europe had risen against france ever since the beginning of seventeen ninety three warfare in which england took part had raged in the low countries at first with a show of vigour and success which later was impaired then ruined by inaptitude and selfishness the memorable siege of toulon with its result was only one of many reverses endured by the allies nor can it be said that they were undeserved by the end of the year the invading armies of the first coalition were all thwarted and compelled to retire and during the next young france broke over the frontier in fiery torrents which could not be withstood the bearing of the english troops under the duke of york was worthy of their ancient renown but they shared in the general disaster and were obliged to retreat before the republican hosts the summer months of seventeen ninety four saw indeed the downfall of robespierre and the glorious first of june but they also saw the english army thrust back as far as antwerp and the whole line of the allies thrust back everywhere from the pyrenees to the mouth of the scheldt some time in may before the allies had been beaten at turquin the english government projected one of those expeditions to the coast of france which young bonaparte a year later spoke of with such scorn lord moira was to make a descent upon brittany and the thirty-third was included in the corps destined for that operation arthur wesley at once resigned his seat and hastened to cork where he joined his regiment but the deplorable intelligence from belgium showed the government that succour must be sent promptly to the duke of york and lord moira embarked his battalions for ostend yet so swiftly ran the stream of french success that he had only just time to land the greater part of his troops and to hurry out of ostend on the road to malines as the french were pouring in from the other side the thirty-third did not march with the main body but went by sea to antwerp where beaten at oudenarde the duke and his army soon arrived at this moment the allies were cut in two by the french armies the austrians having retreated over the meuse by Maastricht, 
and the English having taken the road to Holland. Thenceforward they had no alternative but retreat, and Wesley's first active service was rendered in a British army marching away from its foes. First the Duke moved from Antwerp upon Breda, but unable to remain there, lest he should be turned, he fell back still farther, trusting that he might be able to pass the Meuse near Grave, and thus retain his connection with Germany. Had the Dutch people been friendly, he might have tried to defend Holland, but their sympathies were with the French and the Revolution, and consequently safety alone lay in a northward march. To cover the columns heading for the Meuse, he placed a rear guard of Hessians and Buxtel, a village on the Dommel, but on September 14th, Pichegorus Frenchmen forded the stream, broke into the village, and cut up the detachment. The Duke, who was then at Uden on the A, sent General Abercrombie with the guards, four line regiments, a complement of horse, and some guns to retake Buxtel. They marched in the night and sighted the position at dawn, only to find the enemy on the alert and in great force. Abercrombie judged that it would be well not to attack, yet did not so decide until part of his troops were engaged. In fact, the guards' company in advance lost men and prisoners, and in the retreat there was some confusion in a lane where a light dragoon regiment mixed themselves up with the infantry. Throughout the morning the 33rd were in support, and at this critical moment were well handled, for Colonel Wesley, noting the entanglement and seeing the enemy's horse preparing to charge, drew up his battalion across the outlet from the lane, leaving an opening for the retreating crowd. Then, when they had got clear, he wheeled the center companies into line to fill the gap, and the 33rd, opening a steady fire upon the pursuers, slew and wounded many and brought the pursuit to an end. It was a trifling incident in war, but important to us because the skirmish near Buxtel was Wesley's first engagement, and because his coolness and promptitude attracted the notice of Dundas, a shining light in the world of tactics and parade maneuvers. The French halted on the A, and the Duke of York, crossing the Meuse at Grave, next placed the Val, one branch of the Rhine, between him and his foes. He could not stay even there, but was obliged to recede over the next channel of the Rhine at Anheim. There he quitted the army to assume the post of commander-in-chief in England, and Count Valmoden led the much-tried troops ever northward until they reached Bremen and the British transports. This retreat was made in winter weather of unusual severity, so that the troops endured great privations, fatigues, and miseries. But they persisted despite the ice and snow and attained the ships in the spring. What we have to note is that Colonel Wesley was selected to command the rear guard and faithfully accomplished the arduous task. To him the escape seemed miraculous. In after years, says Mr. Gleek, he used to describe how the army was conducted. If we happened to be at dinner and the wine was going round, it was considered wrong to interrupt us. I have seen a packet handed in from the Austrian headquarters and thrown aside unopened with a remark, that will keep till tomorrow morning. It has always been a marvel to me how any one of us escaped. But the lesson struck deep into that young, observant mind and bore fruit in after years. Bonaparte, in like manner, writing to the Committee of Public Safety toward the end of 1793, described the staff before Toulon as a tas d'ignorants, 
who did not understand their trade the business of warfare had to be learnt by both sides in the exacting school of experience because as the precocious young corsican said three-fourths of mankind never concern themselves with what is necessary until they feel the want of it and then it is too late yet the french had one great advantage which has not escaped the keen eye of sir edward hamley they had the heritage of regular systematic training given in the camps of instruction under the old regime when the new methods were devised and taught which enabled the republican levies to prevail over the old tactics the costly lesson is as old as the world but there are nations which still have to learn that bacon's maxim not to advance is to go back applies to nothing so strictly as it does to military institutions and the conduct of war the commander of the thirty-third brought back his regiment to england in the spring of seventeen ninety five we can imagine in what meditative frame of mind war he knew was a most serious business one on the management of which not only the lives and limbs of men but the fortunes of kingdoms were put to hazard yet how strangely had he seen it conducted so conducted indeed that escape from the supreme risks involved seemed miraculous it ran counter to all his ideas of exactitude vigilance foresight and thoroughness the facts of that campaign in belgium and holland left an ineradicable impression out of which grew grave and earnest meditations which bore unexpected fruit wesley on leave of absence being obtained went to his home at trim he must have thought over the condition of his profession in britain and wondered to himself whether it were a wise man's part to follow the career of arms that is evident from the letter which after consulting his brother lord mornington he wrote to lord camden the viceroy in june of seventeen ninety five fresh from a campaign in which he at least had won some credit by faithful service he asked humbly for a place in some civil department the revenue or treasury board by preference but declared his willingness to accept the viceroy's decision you will be surprised he wrote at my desiring a civil instead of a military office it certainly is a departure from the line which i prefer but i see the manner in which military offices are filled and i don't wish to ask you for that which i know you cannot give me the source of this remarkable attempt to quit the army may be clearly traced to his disgust at the mode in which it was managed and the small prospect of any effective change for the better his application must be regarded by the light he himself sheds upon that period of his life when he described the slovenly mode of conducting war which marked the campaign of ninety four ninety five if circumstances he is reported to have said had not made him a soldier having the gift of rapid and correct calculation he would probably have become distinguished in public life as a financier nothing is more probable but lord camden did not comply with his request and his pre-eminent business faculty remained for use where it was so greatly needed still for a time at least he ran the risk of dying of yellow fever after a brief sojourn in ireland he was ordered to join his regiment which had been selected to form part of an expedition to the west indies he and they embarked but the autumn winds were adverse and after striving for six weeks to get out of the channel the squadron of transports and men of war sought rest and safety in the waters whence they started at spithead he led his regiment to pool in january seventeen ninety six 
and while there he became so ill that when the thirty-third was ordered this time to the east indies the colonel unfit to embark was compelled to remain but he secured a passage in a swift man-of-war and overtook the transports at the cape his destination was calcutta and the change wrought by science and navigation is brought home to the modern traveller when he is told that the thirty-third and its commander did not land in the capital of bengal until february of seventeen ninety seven arthur wesley was now in his twenty-eighth year he had been obscure as a neglected schoolboy unmarked as a military student on the men supposed to be an idler as an aide-de-camp and nearly silent as a member of parliament for never in his life was he in the least self-advertising probably few except his brothers especially richard guessed what sterling qualities lurked under the surface or knew how much he worked in his own way how quietly he filled his mind with really useful knowledge and pondered gravely upon men and things when the test was applied and he had a distinct duty to perform he at once excelled in the doing of it and the young colonel made a model regiment when he had to face the enemy and beat him he was equal to the exigency and as soon as he became famous it was remembered how finely he covered a horrible retreat with his weak rear-guard some at the moment saw his soldierly merits or he would not have been selected to do what was urgently needed as a matter of course when the work was done he sank into the ruck of colonels but only to emerge a victorious general on the plains of india End of section one